Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. I am Patrick Beeman, your usual host, but this is part two of our hematology discussion with Stuart Bryant, our producer, and med school coaches, Emil Gordon. Before we get into that content, here is another Med School Coach Minute with Sahil Mehta, the CEO and founder of Med School Coach, discussing what are the biggest mistakes he sees students make during their dedicated step one preparation. Thanks for listening and enjoy. All right, so we're here with another Med School Coach Minute with Sahil Mehta, who is the founder and CEO of Med School Coach, the premier medical education tutoring and admissions consulting company that has helped nearly 9,000 students get into and get through medical school. All right, Sahil, what do you see as the biggest mistakes that students make in their step one preparation? So step one is obviously a beast of a test in the sense that you have to put your all into really getting a great score. And I think that that sentiment is what actually gets students in trouble really early on. What I mean by that is they know that these scores are extremely important, which they are. And then all of a sudden, what they decide is that they need every single resource that's ever been invented for step one in order to score high. And so they go out and buy every single book that every single friend of theirs has recommended. And what ends up happening is that they have three books for biochemistry, four books for anatomy, you know, three books for physiology and four different flash sets and Picmonic and uh, sketching medical and every single different, uh, you know, learning platform that's on there, they're on. And they try to utilize all of them or they switch between them all the time. And, and that really gets people, I think, in a ton of trouble, right? They, they just, just can't wrap their head around this is the material or this is the book I have for this. This is what I'm going to use. And yeah, you know, this book might be slightly better in in this subject or might be slightly worse in this subject, but this is good enough for me to gain a foundation of what I need. Um, I see students all the time struggle with this and they really try to go and, and get every single learning resource that's out there. When in reality, a lot of the learning resources are not necessarily complementary. They're actually overlapping in a lot of ways. And so one of the biggest things I tell students is when you get started, you really need to take a step back and find a couple of resources that work for you. And really, I would say one resource in each subject is plenty. You know, you don't need seven different microbiology books. You need one and you need to study it and that's it. And so really, I think the biggest mistake that students make in their step one preparation is is the overuse of resources in order to soar high because it, it actually ends up hurting them more than helping them. I'm sure that's sort of also an individual situation, but what are some good uh, ways to kind of cut through the various recommendations out there and decide what you practically should be choosing for your uh, step one prep? I would say start in second year, find the things, you know, like the organization of material for your classes that's applicable to step one and know that book in and out instead of reading, say, a textbook, unless you have to for school, for, I don't know, 
you know, cardiology or something, find a high yield resource that is boards prep focused and use that along with your studying uh, during your classwork. Yeah, Patrick, I, I can't agree more that sort of having a resource early on and not just during your study period, but I mean, early on starting in second year is the best way to understand which resources work for you. Um, and so it's fine if you start second year and pick up one microbiology book or one cardiology book and determine that, you know what, this doesn't really work for me. Let me try the other one. You have still a year before you take the test. It's not fine to do that four weeks before the test. So if you can sort of, you know, have have a set of material that you utilize during your second year and even during your first year in some instances that, you know, you take notes in or that you study from, then going back and reading that same material again is what's going to get you a high score. Because there's so much, you know, there, there's all these studies about sort of memory and how people learn. And one of the most important things is sort of repetition of the same, you know, the same sort of books and the same, let's say, diagrams that you see over and over again, right? If you see the one diagram, the Krebs cycle over and over again, or one diagram of, you know, let's say some uh, skeletal disorder over and over again, then you're going to remember that. That's going to be ingrained in your brain. But if you all of a sudden see another diagram that talks about Ehlers-Danlos in a slightly different way and, and has it in a, in a different format, now all of a sudden your mind is kind of switching back between the two and you can't remember what is where. Um, so I think it's really, really important for somebody to find those resources early on and stick with them. The reality is that most resources out there are pretty good. You know, there, there's, there's not a there's not a giant leap from one to the other. Yeah, there are small differences for sure. And some may be slightly better and some may be slightly worse for different subjects. But in reality, they all cover reasonably well the material you need to know on step one. And so if you've chosen one and you can stick with it, I think that's the best thing to do. All right. And don't let your friends uh, uh, create doubt in your mind or anxiety. <laughs> that's what I would say. Yeah. Oh. Totally agree with that. I mean, yeah, if you found something you like, stick with it. Peer pressure and studying is huge, especially on step one, because you're sitting in the library with all your friends, and they have this resource, you have this resource, and it, it just becomes a mess for students. I, and I, you know, I've been there. We've all been there. You know, we, we've we've done that, and I think can tell you from experience that it's not the right way to go. All right. Well, thanks for your time. To get ten percent off med school coaches tutoring services, go to medschoolcoach.com slash ITB. So my next one is a 66-year-old man presents to the oncology clinic with a recent diagnosed acute myeloid leukemia. He was originally presented with worsening fatigue and a profound leukocytosis. The diagnosis was confirmed with a bone marrow biopsy positive for owl rods. Disease cells are sent to immunohistochemistry analysis, which comes back positive for a mutation that indicates a poor prognosis. The mutation is most likely in the receptor for which of the following products? A. Erythropoietin B. Thrombopoietin C. The FLT3 gene or D. GCSF Alright, so take us through this. Yeah, so first, the first thing I thought of was I've never heard of FLT3 um, but right. I've heard of the other molecules, and if I know anything about step one, it's they're trying to test what I know and not what I don't know. 
although there are exceptions to that rule. So first thing I know here is this guy has AML. And the, the main thing I always think about with AML is actually one of the rarer forms of AML, which is called acute promyelocytic leukemia, of which the receptor is all trans retinoic acid. But that actually is associated with a good prognosis. And I don't hear any of that in the answer choices. So I don't panic. That's the number one. And I know that they have a leukemia. And the second thing I know is that EPO, thromopoietin, and GCSF are all stimulators of growth. And if there are mutations in those, I expect to see something different. So for instance, in EPO, uh, if I get a mutation in that, I don't expect to see any kind of leukemia. I expect to see decreased red cells. And in general, probably someone with chronic kidney disease that I that I um, have a problem with EPO. But here they're saying there's a receptor problem. No leukocyte disorder expected. So I would immediately rule that out. Thrombopoietin is interesting because you can actually get mutations associated in the thrombopoietin pathway, not necessarily in the receptor that are associated with uh, an essential thrombosthenia or along the same spectrum of the disease, primary myelofibrosis. Um, but those are generally in an enzyme called JAK2. But this doesn't sound anything like that. This is a leukemia and not a thrombocythemia. And then GCSF, uh, that is actually um, a stimulating factor which we can give to cancer patients or patients who are undergoing autologous. um, They're donating their own cells to themselves, so we have to harvest them. We can give them GCSF. And that stimulates production of basically neutrophils, lymphocytes, et cetera. And mutations in this pathway would lead to severe uh, neutropenia. And uh, so despite not knowing what FLT3 is, that's that's exactly what I'd pick. <laughs> right. You point out the exact point that I, I was hoping to make here is that, you know, maybe you don't know the answer to some question, but if you're able to work your way, uh, reverse engineer the answer by completely ruling out the other answers, you'll be able to set yourself up to score some extra points, hopefully. Definitely. And that comes with confidence. And, you know, there are some students that I tutor uh, that think uh, that they don't know it, so they're going to pick the one they know. The point is, you know the other ones, and they're not the other ones. So pick the thing you don't know and be confident in yourself. Right. And, and you know, I, come test day, it's important to, to be comfortable to do that. Yeah, when I'm studying and doing questions now, sometimes I'll be like, I'm not sure, so I'm just going to pick an answer that I think could be possible, but I, I don't think is the answer. You know, that's that's during the learning process. But when you're in test-taking mode, you need to be confident that if, you're, if you think an answer is wrong, why would you pick it, right? I definitely agree. And for people who are studying right now, one thing that I would recommend is, so a lot of obscure things do come up when you're studying. Um, it's easy to get sidetracked. If something is showing up in UWorld, uh, in an NBME, first aid, um, and pathoma, it's definitely important. Uh, and you're going to get on test day and there are going to be questions that you have no idea. <laughs> you're like, did I have to know that? Uh, I definitely got questions like that on my step one. But, you, you know, there are only so many factors within your control. But when you're studying, sometimes, you know, knowing what's important is, is, is good. And what is, what is sometimes a test-taking strategy question um, is also good. And I think 
in this one specifically, FLT3 is not in first aid. It's not anywhere else. Um, right. I, I would I, say that that's a very specific thing to know. I, I definitely did some reading on Wikipedia and in some actual research literature to be like, what is this? <laughs> now, to, to clarify this for everyone, FLT3 is a, uh, the FLT3 gene creates the FLT3 receptor, which is a tyrosine kinase receptor, which starts to speak in the language that I think we're more familiar with. And it just turns out that this uh, this specific gene is associated with worse prognosis with this disease. When I was looking at this question, the only other thing that really caught my eye that we could talk about is with another kind of foul, or like test-taking pitfall you can make is I looked at GCSF and, and I said, you know, if this is being increased or if you have increased GS, GCSF, could you have this acute myeloid leukemia? But, you know, when you think about the, the, the mutations occurring, I, I'm not sure if you should bank on one being an activating mutation or an inhibiting mutation. Mm-hmm. And I think in this case, GS, a GCSF mutation would knock it off and cause like a congenital neutropenia. Uh, and that's what you mentioned earlier, I think. I think that's a really good point, and um, that kind of thinking definitely will trip us up. And it, it's definitely true. I think it could possibly be, lead to a leukemia, especially one thing is excess GCSF can lead to the production of more granulocytes and uncontrolled production in almost any cancer or in almost any any individual can lead to an increased chance of mutations, which will result in a cancer. GCSF by itself, you would have, if, if you had, uh, since we always talk about it, if you had heard of that, then um, mm-hmm. that'd be more likely. But since you've never heard of something like that, I think it's good to not take it that extra step because any basically any mutation can cause any cancer at mm-hmm. some point somewhere. But given that we always talk about GCSF and you're studying and everything, uh, try not to, to go right, that Exactly. That and that's far. just taking um, something that you know and maybe extrapolating in a direction that ends up taking you down a rabbit hole you didn't need to go. And, and for me, you know, right. GCSF is going to produce, it, it's going to produce more, but it's not necessarily producing an increased number of dysplastic or immature ALROD produced, you know, produced granulocytes, I guess. So, it, you know, exactly. you, you can't go too far with it, but I could see how I, you know, I had to, sit and think about it for a second before arguing. I think I, I think I did too. So you're right in that. And you know, uh, the thing is thinking in shades of gray is a great, it's a great skill to have in the real world as a scientist thinking in shades of gray on step one, not such a good attribute. (laughs) And I'm a person who thinks in shades of gray. So it's unfortunate fact of reality. The test is not emulating what they want us to train. Like I'm thinking in many shades of gray. But I do agree with you. The concept of high GSF, GCSF in the blood can lead to, can predispose one to developing additional mutations to sustain a cancer. But by itself, uh, it would be a rabbit hole. As you and, and it's just something to think about. And, and, you know, like you said, thinking in shades of gray can you know, really hurt you when you're actually doing something like this. 
on a test day scenario for sure when when they're really trying to present things in i guess a stereotypical way you know exactly uh, and, and going and looking for nuance it it's helpful for finding details but not when you're extrapolating things definitely so i i've got one more we can do um unless you are uh, you're tired of it at this point <laughs> No, I'm, right. I'm, I'm great. <laughs> I just want to make, I just want to make sure. I'm enjoying this. this uh, takes me back. <laughs> I, I know this can be a PTSD kind of experience uh, once you're on the other end. So, <laughs> I, I will say this, and I love to talk to all my students. When you're taking questions on your world and NBME, that's all a PTSD experience. But test day itself is very redeeming. You get, you sit down, you take the test, and you're like, wow, I know most of these. What, what is going, like, this isn't as... Uh, scary as everyone told me beforehand sure it's a very important day but honestly it's a very fair test and if you've prepared and you've done your your world you'll get on test and you'll feel very good about it and that was something that surprised me a lot no and, and that's you know they have to test certain concepts and you're going to have seen those concepts reiterated multiple times in these kind of practice sessions and forums because it it is important uh, on those tests for you to know them and they will get you exactly i kind of think of it like a a a bullseye and i heard this when i was studying for the mcat you know the bullseye in the center is like the critical things they always come up on the test and then as you get further out you get into these things that are commonly tested and then things that are uncommonly tested and then you have all knowledge whatsoever that they could technically pull from right and as long as you know the stuff in the center and have an idea about the stuff going further and further out, you know, that's going to get you where you need to be in terms of passing this exam. Exactly. In fact, I think um, knowing what you just said, the bullseye and maybe a little bit of the periphery should easily get you above <laughs> the 260 um, with, with appropriate confidence. I really do think that's true. When I took, you know, the test, I didn't think it was so obscure. No, exactly. Yeah. And that, that's great. And confidence building for everyone here listening now who is studying. <laughs> All right, so let's do this last one, and then we can call it a day. All right. So, a 71-year-old man comes to the clinic because of headaches and blurry vision for the past two months. He also states that anytime he grabs food out of the freezer, his fingers turn white a while and then blue before becoming painful and the color returns to normal. His temperature is 100.6 degrees. His pulse is 78 his respirations are 14, and his blood pressure is 38 over 84. Physical exam shows generalized lymphadenopathy. Neurological tests show decreased visual acuity bilaterally. He denies pain in his extremities or back. Laboratory studies show a normal serum creatinine and calcium. Serum protein electrophoresis shows an M-spike consistent with IgM. Bone marrow aspirate shows multiple atypical lymphocytes. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? Wow. All right. Before I even get there, uh, let's break this down a little bit. What is- All right. So go ahead. Yeah, the way I would uh, approach this question. So multiple things lead you to uh, say, oh, this is a cancer. So generalized lymphadenopathy. If anyone ever says that, it's either it could be only a few things like HIV, EBV, or some kind of lymphoma or leukemia. Or, or a very bad infection. The other things that really piqued my uh, interest was an M-spike consisting of IgM, which just means there's a lot of IgM floating around. 
and obviously multiple atypical lymphocytes. So we know that this is some kind of malignancy. And then this guy states that his fingers turn white for a while and then blue. And there are only two things, I, two or three things that I can think about that does that. One is Raynaud's phenomenon, which you're going to see in a uh, in an autoimmune kind of picture, which clearly in the question, that's not happening. There could be an old, a cold autoimmune phenomenon, like an autoimmune hemolytic anemia and uh, a Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. When some someone says M-spike, that's one of the first things I think about. Do we want to get to the, yeah, the, sure. the answer choices? So our first answer choice is A, Burkitt's lymphoma, B, monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance, C, multiple myeloma, or D, Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia? You know, after hearing these answer choices, uh, I had mentioned initially... I was thinking, all right, there's an M spike. Something is creating a lot of antibodies. And these antibodies can be created and that could result in this fingers turning white for a while and then blue. And I'd mentioned a called autoimmune hemolytic anemia and a Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. Initially, I was kind of, I was wondering which one it could be because a called autoimmune hemolytic anemia, as some of you may know, is caused by EBD which can cause Burkitt lymphoma, which is mentioned in this uh, question stem. But usually when it's presenting as a mononucleosis, which they'd mentioned here is multiple atypical lymphocytes, that kind of tripped me up a little bit. We had mentioned in one of the answer choices, Waldenstrom macroglobulinemia. That's the only thing besides the called autoimmune phenomenon that causes an IgM spike that I know of. So to me, that is what would make sense. The Burkitt lymphoma that they mentioned there's no lymphoma with specific masses growing out in the body. Um, there's no histology that some, they might mention, like a starry night sky that I've heard of before. So this, the picture that they're presenting overall doesn't really fit with an EBV-associated cold autoimmune hemolytic anemia. They also don't mention anything about hemoglobin. So to me, I go straight to Waldenstrauss macroglobulinemia. They had mentioned some other things like multiple myeloma or monoclonal gammopathy. These are also cancers like Waldenstrom macroglobulinemia that produce uh, antibodies. But with those, you would see IgG or IgA. And oftentimes they might even, they might not even say something like a IgG spike. They might say bone pain or high calcium, or even all of these antibodies can cause problems in the kidneys. So in this patient, none of that was really mentioned. So I actually go straight to Waldenstrom macroglobulinemia. Uh, and that's the right answer. So that obviously like a great way to go about it. And knowing that you pulled out a differential for a Raynaud's phenomenon, and that's going to be extremely helpful for listeners. If you can have, you know, there are only certain things that can go with a few of these kind of syndromes and being able to have that list where you can easily pull those out and say, well, it can only be these three things, which of those is in my answer choices that's going to, you know, take you really far on this kind of exam. You know, I don't really have a lot more to to add to it. You know, MGUS is kind of a smoldering cancer. You don't really have symptoms and you actually need a uh, you, with the bone marrow biopsy, you need to know what percentage of the biopsy is occupied by plasma cells. And I think, you know, there's a cutoff there of 10%. 
And if you're below that, you kind of fall into the MGUS category. And if you're above that, you fall more into the multiple myeloma category, I believe. For me, Waldenstrom's kind of fits in the middle of those two, where mm-hmm. MGUS is kind of asymptomatic. It's very, very minimal exam findings. Multiple myeloma is just like full blown, you know, you've got lytic bone lesions, kidney failure anemia, all these things going on in addition to the plasma cell proliferation. And then Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, blah, kind of falls into the middle of those two. And that's really the only point that I I really want to make with this is, you know, for me, when I'm doing a question like this, I can almost make like a scorecard for a patient's symptoms and findings and just scratch numbers on that scorecard. And the more numbers you get, the further up in one of these disease progressions you kind of go. And so I think people do this rather, I don't know, subconsciously. They don't really think about it when they do it. But if you make this a very overt practice, I think this will help you distinguish a few of these without knowing something like the, the differential for Raynaud's. I definitely agree with you. And, you know, that's all test-taking strategy. Um, crossing out things if they don't match up with the question is how you get the question right. A lot of times the question actually presents a lot more information than you need. And you only need to know one or two of those things. I remember back in the day, I'd get a question on, the answer was some sort of neuroendocrine tumor. And I think they gave me like 10 markers mm-hmm. of which I knew two of them. And all 10 were neuroendocrine type markers. And I only needed to know one or two of them to answer the question. Just like here, they, you know, they mentioned an M spike. They also mentioned Raynaud's. They uh, showed generalized lymphadenopathy, but also multiple atypical lymphocytes. All of these things mean roughly the same thing. In general, you just want to get a feeling. Here's a cancer going on. The other thing I wanted to bring up was in terms of the M spike, there are a few things that are important to know that can cause Waldenstrom's. We mentioned uh, an atypical cancer, like a B-cell neoplasm that can produce the IgM. The other thing is uh, HCV or hepatitis C virus can actually result in a Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. So if you do get an M-spike, sometimes the answer choice will be a hepatitis C virus. I can actually think of a a question back in the day at some point being asked that. And then just knowing why, why is Raynaud's cause here? Step one loves pathophys. So it could be very well, it could very well ask you, you know, what, what's going on here? Why are this person's fingers turning white um, when it's cold? And here I'll lead you to the other thing that I would argue is the exact same idea here, that this guy has decreased visual acuity bilaterally. So basically this guy's blood is thick. You have all these IgM molecules. And you had actually mentioned earlier that IgM binding multiple red cells was a picture you'd seen yeah. before. And uh, that, that well, might not be for the a very IgG, realistic picture. For the IgG, but, let's, let's be clear. Yeah. Oh, for IgG. So IgM, possible, yeah. But, but I no, I mean, I do agree with you that the picture is unrealistic because one little molecule is not going to do that. But a whole bunch of it is going to, in general, cause agglutination. So if you're thinking of a lot of IgM, you get hyperviscosity, decreased visual acuity. And also, um, when it's cold, IgM itself can bind red cells non-specifically in a Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, very specifically in an autoimmune hemolytic anemia. But when it's cold, you can get problems in your fingers. So in this case, some clotting or blocking of vessels because it's cold because the IgM is binding red cells more specifically. And in in a cold autoimmune hemolytic anemia, 
which, and this is kind of high yield, is caused by EBV or mycoplasma. You can also get this, this kind of feature, but it's the IgM is actually binding red cells and they can more specifically or more strongly bind red cells in the cold, which is why you get this right. feature of the disease. All right. Well, that that's all I have on this. Again, you did an excellent job just walking me through just a step-by-step process, and I really appreciate that. Oh, thank you. And, uh, and all it. of this, I, I think this is all cool. super high yield for everybody. I would recommend maybe even listening to this again because this has not only a lot of good educational material, but I feel like we hit a few you know, extra test-taking strategies that maybe we haven't covered in the past with this podcast. So this was definitely good. And I really appreciate you coming on and talking with me through all of this. This is extremely helpful for me. No, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I had a I'm lot glad. of fun too. So yeah, I want to no, take that I, for granted. I'm glad that people uh, can enjoy this um, and not just be scared out of their minds to talk about it. Definitely. All right. Well, thanks. And good luck with your residency. Thank you. Appreciate it. Good. When are you taking step one? End of June. So. <laughs> oh, you're so ready for it. I can already hear it. Uh, <laughs> you can I, just take I it wish. tomorrow. I still have to finish classes, unfortunately. But yeah, I, and I've kind of All made right. that transition out of even worrying about classes so much because at this point I feel like I've just covered everything on my own already. That's amazing. I, I wish I was in that position when I took step one, but it was mostly I, cramming. Like too, I'm sure. I, I've got plenty to review. It'll be absolutely great. I think one thing that my university does well is we take step one after clinics. Oh my gosh. So something like um, knowing the differential of Raynaud's probably comes more from a clinical standpoint um so maybe maybe that was unfair advice no no it, it, and you know this uh, my school kind of you know we get i get like maybe a clinic day every month or so <laughs> so that that kind of oh, helps great. me a little bit with that but you're right you know until you know how to start sorting through this stuff or if you know how to sort through this stuff it can take you miles on one of these kinds of tests i definitely agree. and my i think my schools realize that so my school is the highest step one average out of all schools in the country. And I think that's the reason. Not because everyone's smart. It's literally. Oh, no, I wouldn't doubt it. You know, we try, you know, I honestly think that it should kind of happen a little bit more in reverse of how they currently do it at most schools. And if your school is that progressive, that, that is an amazing thing for you. But no, that <laughs> I really appreciate it. And <laughs> I appreciate it. But it sounds like you're already worlds ahead of where I was at this point. So uh, you're great. And your listeners are going to be I'm great, too. I'm hoping so. But yeah, I really appreciate This was super high yield. I don't think I've gotten more out of one of these talks than this time. Oh, really? I, neither did I. So, I mean, I appreciate yeah, it. I learned was, a lot as well. really helpful. And Patrick, Patrick's so into clinics now. When, when we were talking, sometimes I... Um, you know, both of us can kind of stare at a question and kind of be lost about what to cover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's a lot. I think all of these were super high yield and very great. I'm sure uh, it will be, but thank you very yeah, much. You really appreciate you it. Thank you so much for, again. And we will end it there. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Rao Reynolds and Enter Shikari for letting us use the track Anesthetist off the 2015 album, The Mind Sweep. We'll see you back next week for some more high yield learning.